Welcome. Welcome to an enchanted evening. Welcome to the first in the series of the University of Pennsylvania Law School's partnership with the IDLO and other UN agencies. Once again, welcome to an enchanted evening, an inspiring evening. In every generation, there comes a call to action. And tonight, the University of Pennsylvania Law School joins its partner, IDLO, to rededicate our commitment to a new model for development for the next 15 years. Against the backdrop of the high-level political forum on sustainable development, we gather here tonight at a historic moment, at an inflection point in the history of the development movement. Gains made today will shape the development agenda for the next 15 years. Deputy Secretary General Jan Eliasson spoke of a toolbox of policy measures needed to implement the Sustainable Development Goals. We are here tonight to discuss that toolbox. The final Millennium Development Goal report acknowledged certain challenges that will face the Sustainable Development Goals. He acknowledged that conflicts and discrimination against women were two major threats to sustainable development. No one understands those threats, those challenges better than Ambassador Michelle Sisson. Ambassador Michelle Sisson is the United States Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations and the Security Council. She's also a personal hero to me. She has served as the ambassador to many countries in conflict and post-conflict, to Sri Lanka, to Lebanon, and as the chief of mission to Iraq. I want to share a quotation from Ambassador Sisson, one that will serve as the lodestar to tonight's discussion, as well as for generations to come. She has said, that the most important challenge, one that bears on our very identity as a nation state, is to protect and maintain our core principles of the rule of law during difficult times and during conflict. Ambassador Sisson, we are delighted and honored to welcome you here as our keynote speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Rangita, and uh, that was very kind, too kind. And I want to thank uh, the dean of the University of Pennsylvania's Law School for the invitation tonight as well. I'd like to offer a few words also at the outset uh, in praise of the International Development Law Organization, IDLO, the event's co-host tonight. I've just met Irene Khan for the first time tonight, but my colleague, Ambassador David Lane, the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Missions in Rome, had told me so much, has told me so much about IDLO's important rule of law projects in many of the most challenging settings around the world, and IDLO's key role 
uh, in addressing these challenges, and of course, Irene's key role as Director General. EDLO's unique mandate to promote sustainable development through the rule of law places it in a pivotal position with regard to so many of the issues we are confronting around the world today. I really want to compliment both the Penn folks and Idlo for this crowd tonight. I was just commenting that the days can be very long here in New York and at the UN. This is one of the biggest crowds I've seen this summer, so congratulations <laughs> to the organizers. The U.S. had the privilege of serving as president of IDLO from 2011 to 2014. It's been a proud member since IDLO's founding. I'm also very happy to see Bill Burke-White on this panel, given his prior experience at the U.S. Department of State in our policy planning shop. It has been a real pleasure, of course, Rangita, to connect with you, to reconnect with you. We work together so closely on the Women in Public Service Project. Turning to our topic, as you all know, goal 16 of the Sustainable Development Goals proposed by the Open Working Group includes the promotion of the rule of law on the national and international levels. Rule of law is, frankly, far more than just one element of the development agenda, however. I think it's best to think of the rule of law as a per perpetual motion machine, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I've served overseas for much of my 33 years in the U.S. Foreign Service, 11 overseas postings, and I've come to this new position in New York as the Deputy Permanent Representative for the U.S with a few observations. First, promoting the rule of law can facilitate the achievement of other important development goals. Second, promoting the rule of law creates a recursive effect in the sense that citizens become better able to make their voices and demands heard, both with regard to social justice, and equity issues, but also the rule of law itself, forcing deeper and deeper commitment to the rule of law. And finally, promoting the rule of law has a demonstrative effect, boosting confidence and encouraging investment. One key aspect of the rule of law is the notion that each member of society should be able to exercise, of course, his or her rights. And as the UN Secretary General has said in one of his recent reports on the rule of law, the equal protection of the law as the means to achieve freedom from fear and freedom from want is the most sustainable form of protection. Now, too often, however, women lack such equal protection of the law, and Rangita mentioned this gender aspect. For example, despite their significant role as agricultural producers in many nations, and women comprise the majority 
of small-scale farmers in many locations, women may not have the same right to control land and resources as men. In fact, the Food and Agriculture Organization has found that for a majority of women, access to land and property is dependent on birth and marital affiliations. They can lose their rights when there is a change in their marital status, for example. But as we know, land tenure rights are absolutely essential as they unlock access to markets. Without land tenure rights, women cannot enter into long-term contracts, for example, causing investors perhaps to deal exclusively with men. Likewise, some states have laws on the books that discriminate against women and their ability to confer nationality on their children on an equal basis with men. And others, an even greater number, deny women equal rights with men to acquire, change, or retain their nationality. Without official nationality, women are more vulnerable to various forms of exploitation and abuse. Changing legal systems to provide women codified and equal rights to land tenure and to acquire and confer nationality would have considerable multiplier effects. Studies have shown that securing and recognizing women's land rights can increase agricultural productivity and shared household decision-making, thereby helping lift women and their families out of poverty. I'd like to turn now to the second aspect of the rule of law, perpetual motion machine. This would be the way in which promoting the rule of law creates a rule of law cascade. The rule of law promotes respect for freedoms of expression and association and facilitates access to justice. The cascade, these in turn allow individual citizens to continue to push reforms spurring further and further change. This is why we speak not only of building free or fair societies, but of ever striving for freer and fairer societies around the world. Strong and successful countries require strong and vibrant civil societies. As President Obama has said, human progress has been propelled not just by famous leaders, not just by states, but by ordinary men and women who believe that change is possible. Now, of course, the rights to freedom of expression and peaceful assembly permit those ordinary men and women to make their voices heard. Around the world, however, too many states are cracking down on civil society standing up for the rights of our civil society partners around the world is not just about promoting the rule of law, but also about the generating of good ideas, fostering entrepreneurship, and directly supporting other key elements 
of the development agenda. We are really proud of our Stand with Civil Society initiative, which is designed to push the walls back out when they start closing in on civil society. Another example of this rule of law cascade is, the, is in the effectiveness of responses to corruption, including in particular transparency. Corruption hurts individuals trying to make a fair living. It stunts economies, as we all know, and undermines democracy. It causes citizens, in some cases, to lose faith in their leaders. In addition to pursuing corrupt actors with law enforcement tools, we have found that one of the best ways of fighting corruption is by pushing governments to be more transparent. When citizens know more about their government and their leaders, it becomes harder and harder for corruption to flourish. The US Department of State and our bilateral assistance agency, USAID, devote approximately $1 billion per year to support anti-corruption and related good governance activities. We also launched with our partners what we call the Open Government Partnership in 2011, which provides a platform for work to make governments more open, accountable, and responsive to their citizens. The final example of this multiplier effect that I wish to mention this evening is access to justice. I was privileged serving in Iraq as the Assistant Chief of Mission for Rule of Law and also during my tenure in Lebanon as the U.S. Ambassador to see a variety of U.S.-led access to justice programs on the ground. Access to justice is critical. Even if a state has the best laws on the books, if individuals are not aware of those laws or are unable to avail themselves of them, we've got a problem. So I would emphasize here the critical role civil legal aid can play. A family may be concerned about unsafe housing conditions, for example, but they often see such problems as a personal or social problem or just bad luck, whereas a civil legal aid lawyer may be able to identify a legal solution. Now, with respect to each of these principles, freedom of expression, peaceful assembly, transparency, and access to justice, the rule of law we see impels societies ever forward. I'd also like to say a few words about the demonstrative effect of a commitment to the rule of law, especially when it comes to ensuring that no one is above the law. One of the things I've learned during my years of service in post-conflict states in several regions around the globe is how critical the pursuit of accountability is in the process of reconciliation for citizens to invest themselves in supporting a government and promoting open and inclusive dialogue across ideological, ethnic, or religious lines, they must be able to see that impunity will not prevail and that future crimes will not go unpunished. Now, during a period in which I served as the US ambassador to Sri Lanka, I did see periods when the rule of law seemed to be eroding 
for example, when there were attacks against prominent journalists or there were, was arbitrary blocking of news websites. We also saw during that period an urgent need for reconciliation after a long conflict. I'm happy to say, as Secretary Kerry recently remarked during a visit to Sri Lanka earlier this year, that while much hard work remains, Sri Lanka's traditions of critical debate, free press, and independent civil society are returning. And that's the promise of a commitment, a commitment to rule of law and accountability. And to give another example, we've been pleased to see in the Central African Republic the passage of a national law establishing a special criminal court, which will be a domestic court with some international judicial personnel set up to investigate and prosecute mass atrocities in the Central African Republic. And this court has the potential to help show people that they have recourse. And this court will give the citizens of the Central African Republic an opportunity to have justice. I also served, as Rangita mentioned, as a US ambassador to Lebanon. And I'd like to note that the special tribunal for Lebanon, where trial work is underway, broadcasts proceedings within Lebanon in full transparency to show the course of justice, another really important example. Now, it's often said with some truth that the rule of law is about institutions, not simply about men and women. And in fact, in my experiences over the years as a serving ambassador uh, and the year I spent in Iraq, managing a variety of US government rule of law and access to justice programs, we certainly put a lot of focus in the field into building institutions, including building strong and independent judiciaries. But as we pursue the rule of law, we need to always remember the important ways in which the rule of law can profoundly help societies and the individuals living in them. I want to thank you, Rangita, Pan, and Idlo for inviting me and my US mission to the UN colleagues here this evening and to share these thoughts with you. I know this is just kicking off what is going to be a terrific evening of exchange and very interesting ideas. Thanks again. Thank you very much, Ambassador Sisson. On behalf of IDLO, it's always a pleasure to welcome the US as the Vice President of IDLO, and I wanted to mention that. I also wanted to acknowledge the presence of the Under Secretary General for Legal Affairs, the highest level legal authority at the UN. So thank you very much, sir, for joining us. And now I would like to welcome Irene Khan, Director General of the International Development Law Organization, the first woman elected to this position. Irene was the former Secretary General of Amnesty International, a post she held after a long and distinguished career at the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Director General. Thank you, uh, and welcome to the UN. In keeping with uh, UN protocol, let me start by acknowledging the Under Secretary General for Legal Affairs, Ambassador Sison, and of course, uh, my friend and uh, Dean, 
uh, for International Affairs uh, from UPenn, uh, Rangita. And other distinguished guests here, the panelists, many of you here uh, who have come uh, from this academic world, we always uh, welcome uh, the fresh breath of fresh air that you bring with ideas, and I'm sure in the discussion that will follow, a lot of that will come out. Let me uh, just begin by saying a few words about IDLO, the International Development Law Organization. Uh, we are the world's only intergovernmental organization that is exclusively devoted to promoting the rule of law. Uh, we are not part of the UN system, but we have very strong partnerships with the UN. We are intergovernmental. Uh, the U.S. is a founding member of IDLO, as uh, are a number of other countries. Um, and what we do is actually work on the ground in countries uh, trying to build people's trust and confidence in the rule of law. And it's not an easy task. Our largest program is in Afghanistan. I am just coming from there uh, after having met uh, with uh, my colleagues who are working under extremely difficult conditions. We have been in Afghanistan since 2002. And now, as we continue to build the institutions, the justice institutions, those very institutions are now being attacked precisely because I think they are succeeding. And those who feel threatened by the rule of law then turn to violence. But the rule of law is essential for building peace on the ground. The rule of law is essential for establishing uh, people's rights. Uh, the rule of law is essential for also, of course, uh, establishing economic prosperity and opportunity. And that is why the rule of law, to me, is a no-brainer when we talk about the international development agenda. And you will hear, of course, the panelists talk about that. Let me say that in September, in this very building, uh, the world's leaders will gather to adopt a new development agenda for the next 15 years. And th that new development agenda is being born in a very challenging world. A world that is deeply marked by inequality that marginalizes millions of people even while others get richer. There are ominous demographics that actually deprive both the old and the young from decent lives and livelihoods. Hundreds of people are fleeing their homes because of unresolved conflicts. Many more are crossing because of unregulated forces of globalization that are forcing people to go seek work uh, across borders. Some are dying on the high seas. Uh, IDLO is headquartered in Rome, in Italy, and there, as you may have heard in the news, people have been washed up on the shores. Uh, many, many uh, of them are fleeing conflict uh, and strife in the Middle East and in North Africa. And it is no wonder, therefore, no surprise, that all of us want a transformative development agenda. And that is the term that I've heard again and again and again in this building, a transformative agenda. Whether we will get that agenda or not remains to be seen. But what is very interesting about this new agenda is a people focus. It's the integration of social, economic, and environmental dimensions of development for the first time, integrating all three aspects. But I think the most even more interesting than all that is that for the first time, there is a recognition 
of the rule of law as being fundamental to development. The rule of law is not just an abstract concept. Uh, this room, I'm sure, is full of many lawyers or um, budding lawyers, uh, and we might understand what the rule of law is. The rule of law, if we really understand the rule of law, then it is actually the basis for eradicating poverty, for fighting discrimination, for ensuring equitable access, uh, affordable, meaningful access to essential services. It's also important for setting the regulatory frameworks for natural resource management, uh, for setting the planetary boundaries. But we all know what happens when the rule of law doesn't exist. We know of women who are not protected from violence. Uh, we know of the poor who do not get justice. We know of corruption. In fact, uh, in one of the countries where IDLO is working, the Chief Justice commented that, the, uh, that in that country, people say, why hire a lawyer if you can buy a judge? Uh, so it's, it's those types of situations uh, that uh, the rule of law addresses. It's critical, the predictability and certainty the rule of law provides, we all know, is critical for creating a stable economic environment for investment. Uh, we know that the rule of law is essential for balancing competing interests when we talk about uh, the environment, for example. People, profit, planet, how do you balance them? The rule of law can actually provide you with the principles, the regulations, the mechanisms uh, for resolving those kinds of conflicts. But the rule of law does more than that. It actually regulates power. And the poor, poverty, is not a matter of income. It is actually a matter of powerlessness. And that is why the rule of law is so essential if you're going to look for an agenda for development. But let me say that it is not enough just to adopt laws or even to have uh, justice institutions. Laws can discriminate, as we know, against women. They can exclude the poor, minorities. Institutions can be mismanaged and manipulated. The law can be selectively enforced in favor of the rich and well-connected. Uh, people whose rights are violated can be left without a remedy because it's too expensive to get that remedy. We all know how much lawyers cost. Um, and that's why it's important to understand the difference between the rule of law and the rule by law. Uh, even many lawyers do not always understand that fully. <coughs> what makes that difference? What makes that difference is that rule of law is not just about predictability and certainty. It's actually about human rights. The rule of law operationalizes human rights. It makes it real. And this is a very important message, particularly in this building, because the UN, well, the UN lives with many paradoxes, but there is one that bothers me deeply. And that is the paradox, the parallel lines. You can almost see it as uh, railway lines, but there are two trains that have been hurtling through the landscape of the United Nations uh, since its inception. One has been the, land, the, the train that's running the development agenda, and the other is the train that's running the human rights agenda. 
And I hope that the rule of law, the principle of the rule of law that has now been acknowledged as part of the new development agenda will bring those two tracks together. And I hope it won't be a crash. It'll actually be a synergy. Because what the development agenda needs is the sense that people matter, people's rights matter, that people claim their rights. We have a development agenda that is actually supply-driven. We come and we tell people what they need and we provide it to them. We need to, but real development doesn't happen that way. When I went to Afghanistan, uh, I met women's groups there. We run a, a program. We've been implementing a program for the last five years with support from the United States. And that program is actually a program to combat gender-based violence. And we are working with women in the centers there uh, to help Afghan women's groups establish uh, these shelters for women. These shelters were first um, maligned as being uh, places for prostitutes. So we had to work with the Ministry of Social Welfare to develop standards so that the Ministry of Social Welfare could regulate these centers. We work with the Attorney General's office to develop prosecution units uh, where women's uh, um, claims can actually be uh, prosecuted, uh, uh, rape cases, other, other types of abuse against women. And uh, we actually are also working to develop a legal aid network that women can turn to for help. Uh, that's, and, and there, when I met with these women, I was really struck by how engaged they were, how empowered they were. Uh, they, these were not victims. These women had made the conscious decision that they were going to stand up for their rights. They were going to leave uh, the abusive environments in which they are. And all they need from us is help, support, counseling. But they were ready. They had made their choice. They were ready to build their lives. I think that's the kind of development that we have to look at. That's what the rule of law has to do. It has to empower people. Laws are meaningless if they don't make a difference in people's lives. Now, in the development agenda, you will hear later today, there's a lot of discussion about uh, how, how, do you, how do you measure? Because, you know, development is run by economists, and they measure everything. Um, so if you can't measure something, it doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. How do you measure justice? How do you measure justice? That's a very, very interesting question that all of us who are lawyers need to think. Now, of course, every country in the world, including the United States, measures justice in some way. We measure the effectiveness, how uh, efficiency of courts, how many cases go through the court, how fast, uh, how easy is it uh, for you to go and have your case resolved. Those are the things uh, we, we do measure. But does that really? bring justice. So it's very important to think about the formal uh, justice, the rule of law as it exists, as we lawyers like to believe it, and justice as people understand it. How do you measure people's perception of justice, people's perception of whether institutions are working for them or not? What difference is it making to their lives? Are human rights just words on pieces of paper uh, that delegates here in this building used to argue are our human rights the powerful means of controlling, the means of controlling the powerful, of empowering women, we've heard about women, people with disabilities, marginalized communities, indigenous groups. What does it do for them? 
And that's the question I think that will come again and again and again as we, uh, as we uh, accept this new development agenda, as we start implementing it on the ground. That's, that's what really will matter. And I know that, for instance, for the program that we are working in Afghanistan, uh, there have been, as we know from the news from time to time, some very horrible stories. And there's a lot more that's happening on the ground that is just terrible. And when that happens, you can look at the statistics and you can get depressed. Or you can listen to the voices of people and you can get energized. Uh, I, a few years ago, I was flying actually from, uh, two years ago I was flying from uh, Rome to New York and I saw a story in the newspaper, in the New York Times about a woman who had been um, a victim of what in Afghanistan is called badal. Badal is a practice by which you, um, you can hand over a woman as restitution for a crime. And this woman had been handed over uh, to, to another uh, tribe because of some wrong that her tribe had done against the other one. Uh, she was then abused and attacked and raped, and she did something remarkable that very few Afghan women do. She, took, she complained. She took, up, took her case uh, to the state, to the state prosecution system. And I read that story in the newspapers. I was struck by it. And then I came back to Rome. I called up my colleagues in, I, in Kabul, and I said, can you follow this case? What's happening? And they actually tracked the case. And about eight or nine months later, that woman uh, won her case. The people, there were nine people who were pro prosecuted, who were convicted, who were imprisoned. And the prosecutor was someone who had actually been trained by us as part of our program. And that story to me is actually what really the real story of the rule of law. Now here, what the law did builds confidence in the women. The woman goes, um, stands up for her case and, and wins it. Now, as you all know, a few weeks ago in Afghanistan, a woman was burnt in a public place, burnt to death, uh, because she was accused of burning the Quran. And that was a horrible, horrible thing that happened to her. But what happened, the, 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 uh, of course, uh, the state then uh, arrested, prosecuted uh, the perpetrators and so on, but people, ordinary people, men and women, took to the streets. For the first time ever, uh, they were protesting on the streets. And that kind of public reaction is also an essential part of the rule of law, engaging people, bringing them on board, because it is, after all, about people. Um, and, and I think... And I hope that the greater uh, engagement with civil society will give some life to this development agenda. And I'm very pleased that you have come from the outside world into this UN uh, building, into this UN world, to bring a dose of reality. And all the panelists, of course, will talk about what the development agenda looks like, what does it mean, what difference it will mean. But it will make no difference unless people like you People like you take up that agenda and make it a real agenda in the outside world. Whether it's in the United States, whether in Kabul, whether in Juba, where we also work, or in Nairobi, or in Bishkek, or in Tegucigalpa, all the places where IDELO is working, our work is meaningless unless it empowers people to claim the rights. Justice has to be driven by demand, not by supply. Institutions respond when people can hold 
their institutions accountable. And that is why, for me, the rule of law, human rights, and legal empowerment of people are parts of the same coin. And it is that uh, um, integrated picture that's going to make a difference uh, to the development agenda. So thank you very much for your support and for being here. Thank you very much for coming, everybody. Good evening. My name is Edith Lettera. I'm Chief UN Correspondent for the Associated Press, and I will be serving as the moderator for our panel. It's great to see a standing room only crowd at the UN. It doesn't happen all the time, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> um, we will be focusing tonight on how efforts to promote the rule of law may best address problems of equity and social justice confronting the international community. Particularly, we're going to be looking at how strengthening the rule of law can act as a force for delivering an integrated, people-centered development agenda. I should add here tonight that our event is co-hosted by the University of Pennsylvania Law School and the International Development Law Organization, part of a burgeoning collaboration between these two institutions. And I would like to thank both Rangita and Michelle Sissons and Irene Khan for their very interesting opening remarks. Um, Penn Law and IDLO are convening tonight's event to help inform how we approach the sustainable development goals as well as how the SDGs are framed and concretely implemented by the United Nations community and the key stakeholders including civil society. We're fortunate to have with us speakers who will provide insights from multiple perspectives about how these overarching goals may be translated into measurable actions and outcomes. Because our time is very limited, I'm going to very briefly introduce our speakers so we can begin our conversation. You've already heard from Rangita de Silva de Alwis, the Associate Dean for International Programs at Penn Law. But let me tell you just a little bit about her. She arrived at Penn this year from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, where she directed the Global Women's Leadership Initiative and the Women in Public Service Project, launched by uh, 
former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and the Seven Sisters Colleges. Next, we have Khalid Malik, the former director of the Human Development Report at the UN Development Program. He has also served as UN resident coordinator in China from 2003 to 2010. Also with us is William Burke White, a professor of international law at Penn who is the inaugural director of Penn's Perry World House. He also served as a member of Secretary Clinton's policy planning staff at the U.S. State Department. And finally, we have Nikhil Seth, the director of the Division for Sustainable Development in the U.N.'s Department of Economic and Social Affairs. Pertinent to our discussion tonight, he was also head of the Rio Plus 20 Secretariat. We're delighted to have such distinguished experts with us. And before we begin, I do want to let you know that our panel session will be conversational. Um, first, I'll engage the experts on the dais, and following that, we'll open the floor to your questions. And now, um, without any further ado, um, let me start with a question for Bill. What is the imperative in using a public international law framework in approaching development issues? How may strengthening the rule of law serve other development goals? So thank you. First of all, it's a treat to be here, and uh, I'll jump straight to it. Uh, I think uh, we have to understand international law as in a deeply synergistic relationship with the Sustainable Development Goals. In some ways, the Sustainable Development Goals reflect the principles of international law, uh, and so too uh, does international law really reflect the goals we see in the Sustainable Development Agenda. And of course, it's uh, 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 item 16 in the SDGs that's really most about law and rule of law and transparency, uh, but I think international law cuts across so many of the goals, whether it's respect to human rights uh, or accountability, uh, as has been mentioned before. But I think if you try to distill those, uh, the SDGs down, um, peace has to be at the core of development no matter what. It's almost impossible to uh, achieve those goals without peace. And international law provides a mechanism both for keeping the peace and for making the peace. Secondly, we've heard a little bit about institutions, and across each of those goals, institutions are absolutely critical to attaining them. And I think international law provides a framework for designing those institutions, for supporting them, for fostering them. So too, we've heard about accountability, and international law really provides a mechanism for achieving accountability. I think it does so in three ways. One is about complementarity. When domestic institutions fail, international law and institutions are there um, to step in as a backstop uh, or to urge and nudge improvements at the national level. 
Secondly, it provides a legitimate framework for transnational enforcement. We could talk a lot about the anti-corruption efforts that have been very, very successful. They are often driven uh, by this transnational enforcement legitimated through international rules. And finally, international law can provide a kind of direct enforcement, and we see that with respect to human rights accountability and international criminal accountability, where international law has been there to provide uh, the meaningful intervention in a legitimate, usually transparent, and broadly supported way. So I think international law cuts across all of these. It alone can't do the work, but it's there to motivate national governments and institutions and to support them when they can't do it themselves. Thank you. Um, Rangita, let's talk about goal five. How do you see the role of law and gender equality issues intersecting? Um, as you know, they are both cross-cutting, of course. Edith, a few years ago, in 2011, Michel Bachelet, the current president of Chile and the former head of UN Women, stated to the General Assembly that the rule of law rules women out. The rule of law does not capture the interests of women. The rule of law has been, to much of its history, defined by male hierarchy. Therefore, issues of human security, women's security, such as violence against women, both during conflict and post-conflict, have not been addressed sufficiently by the rule of law. Secondly, women's access to justice has been impeded. And barriers to women's access to justice, whether it is accessing courts, whether it's accessing legal aid, or whether it is a judiciary that is packed by male hierarchies, have impeded women's access to justice, as well as the ways in which women are underserviced and underrepresented in positions of power. We come together at an important moment in the history of the global women's movement. We are celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Beijing Platform of Action, which called for parity of status in women in decision making and women in parliaments. However, 20 years after a call for a critical mass of women, 33% women, at a minimum to be represented in positions of power, in the corridors of power in legislative uh, bodies around the world. Today, women constitute just a little over 20% on average in the legislative bodies around the world. And if those figures are dire, the figures are even worse when it comes to women in decision-making, in peacemaking. Not a single woman has headed a peace negotiating process. Women constitute just over 2% of peace delegations. And that has resulted in peace treaties that have inadequately captured the needs of women. For example, of the 300 peace treaties that have been forged, after the, world, after the Cold War ended, only 10 peace treaties speak to violence against women in conflict and in post-conflict. What we see in the SDGs is a 
founded in Indian development goals. For the first time, the development goals refer to anti-discrimination lawmaking as well as addressing violence against women. The third important pillar that UN Women has articulated is the importance of women's decision-making both in the home as well as in public. Women around the world, especially in countries that are going through transitional justice, often say, how can women be, a, be heads of state when women cannot be heads of households? When women do not have equal access to property, equal access to inheritance laws, equal access to bank accounts, how can women have equal rights to political participation? So what we see is that the SDGs for the first time capture those needs, but much needs to be done in order to close the gender gaps, in order to actualize the SDGs. And we've heard about the need for accountability. We, we have heard earlier in the evening the need to address impunity. Impunity is something that endangers women. Most often, rule of law does not look at violence against women in the home in private. But the SDGs call for looking at violence against women as a national security issue as a development issue. We see the evidence-based research shows that when women are harmed, when women face violence, development suffers. We see how when women are devoid of equal citizenship rights, equal decision-making to fertilizers, there is a 17% decrease in cultivation in agricultural products. For example, in Malawi, when women don't have equal access to fertilizers, development suffers by 17%. So the SDGs are a huge improvement, but much more must be done to enforce those SDGs on the ground. Thank you very much, Rangita. That was very interesting. Um, let me ask Nicole. Um, the SDGs are overarching goals. Let's look at some concrete examples or case studies. Where have you seen the SDGs most successfully translated into measurable actions and outcomes? Thank you, Edith. The fact is that the SDGs have to still be signed off on. This is so, true. So uh, talking about their success, is a little premature. We will have, uh, of course, after once we've adopted the SDGs and we've gone into an implementation phase, I'm sure this new conceptual approach to development is going to help in achieving a broad, holistic uh, um, sort of swathe of things that we're going to cover. But I want to demystify the SDGs because to start with, many people get confused. They say this is such a complex agenda. What is this all about? And I would say there are five Ps. You can hold your hand up and count these five Ps on your fingers. The SDGs are about people, they're about our planet, they're about prosperity, they're about peace, and they're about partnerships. So if you remember these five Ps, you will get in a very succinct way what this new 
developmental approach is. And this is where I think we need to look at each one of these SDGs. Firstly, don't treat the SDGs as a list of goals. They are not a simple list of goals. They're actually a deeply interconnected web of relationships. Progress on each one of the SDGs is crucially dependent on progress of the others. So don't treat these SDGs as a simple list. Treat them like an integrated, interrelated web of relationships. And when you treat them as an interrelated web of relationships, and are related to our major discussions of the rule of law, I would say that we think straight away of goal 16 because the four magic words, the rule of law, are mentioned in that goal. But actually, the rule of law is mainstreamed in this entire agenda. Let me give you some uh, illustrations. I could go, of course, SDG by SDG. That would be onerous. But look, let's look at SDG 1, the one on poverty. And it's quite clear that the uh, concept of social protection, which is enshrined in this goal, is drawn from Article 22 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And uh, there is, a, in addition to this, on the legal empowerment of work, there is a whole serious body of work on legal empowerment of the poor. The covenant of economic, social, and cultural rights does talk in a paragraph on international cooperation for development. And there is a lot of uh, success stories of judicial activism, I know in my own country, on issues like food, water, shelter. There's been a great deal of judicial activism on what we call the public interest litigation. So just on one goal, uh, on the goal on poverty, there is so much which can be done through uh, the rule of law to empower the achievement of these goals. I could run down these goals, but let me treat them in clusters. Let's look at the whole cluster of environmental goals. Now, of course, I'm doing in, uh, injustice to this integration, but many of these goals, people say, the one looking at the marine ecosystems, the one looking at the terrestrial ecosystems, the one looking at climate change, on water, on energy, those are a cluster of environmental goals. Now, if you look at the environment today, let's look at the state of our oceans. The UN Convention on the Law of the Sea has been with us for over 40 years. Is that the only way to approach oceans? We are, our oceans are in a very deplorable state. If you look at all other aspects of environment and environmental law, I think of all the issues that are covered in the SDGs, environmental law and the kind of development of environmental law since Rio 23 years ago has been profound. Mm -hmm. But is our air better? Is our land safe? Are our waters safe? Is our, are our oceans safe? So I think you need much more, uh, of course. The legal frameworks are important. But you need to think much beyond legal frameworks to make many of these things work. Similarly, on issues like violence against women, of course, the legal framework is necessary. But you need to have an audit of what are the real bottlenecks in making this terrible thing come to an end. It's clearly not in the domain of judiciaries and police and the executive alone. It's a cha changing of people's mindsets, the stereotyping that happens in minds. So in many of these, I think the rule of law uh, sweep through all of the SDGs, but you need to complement the rule of law along with several other societal and other changes of the type I'm mentioning, whether it's environmental law 
or uh, the training which is associated with uh, the ending violence against women, to make these a living reality for people and a force for change in harmony with the five Ps, in harmony with people, in harmony with prosperity, in harmony with the planet, in harmony with peace, and in harmony with partnerships. Thank you very much. Uh, that was a really interesting rundown and a fascinating way that I think is very important to look at these new goals because there are 17 of them compared to the eight millennium development goals plus 169 different targets. Um, Colin, um, let me ask you, who, since you have put together the Human Development Report, which is sort of the Bible of how countries are doing. Um, who in the international community is at the greatest risk, and how concretely do you protect human development achievements? Uh, thank you, Edith, and good evening, everyone. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here, and I'm not a uh, a legal scholar or a, a lawyer, so let me just try to give you a, a broad perspective of uh, the human development thinking. Uh, I'm, I think it's really impressive that the sustainable goals are fundamentally about people. I think that's the big difference of these uh, sustainable goals. They are universal, meaning that they apply to all countries, and they're interconnected, as uh, I think Nikhil also highlighted, that you cannot easily take one goal out and then try to talk about it because they fundamentally come together. And, and in some ways, uh, you know, thinking about all of this, uh, one has to go back and understand what makes a difference in people's lives. And that's what the human workforce have been trying to do for many years. And interestingly enough, when you start looking at jobs or social protection or uh, uh, things which protect people when uh, the environment doesn't do well for them, mm -hmm. you suddenly realize a very large percentage of the world's population is at risk to some factor or the other. So we have to, and intrinsic in all of this is the real debate of what is a just society? And there's a, those who study this uh, topic, I know a lot about the debate between Rawls and Amartya Sen. And Sen basically has taken a view which I fully support that we're really talking about making the world less unequal. So we have to be very pragmatic and see how do we improve everyone's life chances. And how do we do that? And they, they used to say that you have to be rich before you can afford uh, universal approaches to education or health or social protection. And now we're taking the view that actually, if you don't do that, you don't progress. And you have to do that at all levels of income. And what was fascinating in the last report, which I was uh, privileged to lead, you realize that countries in Scandinavia took profound decisions on who to educate and who to cover in, in, in terms of uh, health insurance uh, at per capita income levels which are, were lower at that time than what South Asia is now. So it is possible to make a progress and improve the lives of people. And I think we look at law also from a broader perspective because unless you have uh, justice and developmental aspects embedded in it, you cannot
just rely on procedures and institutions to make a difference. Uh, if you are a minority uh, in a country which has anti, does not have strong anti-discrimination culture and, and, and legislation, you cannot move forward that well, even if you are comfortable and you're well off. So unless we make progress on a variety of these things, human progress is not possible. So I think the issue of law has to be connected with a very pragmatic way of looking at how people's lives actually improve. So at different stages of development, we may need different things, but fundamentally, the rule of law is the connecting thread among this many goals. And I think there's a great opportunity here that we learn from each other and find ways of actually improving the lives of people. And that's what law has to be all about. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask the panel, whoever might like to answer, what do you see as the critical barriers that, that are going to have to be overcome to achieve these new goals over the next 15 years? Yeah, Edith, I'll have a quick shot at that. First, and I think the most fundamental barrier is the change in mindsets, because we are looking at a new way of doing business. We are looking at uh, this often quoted concept of integration. But what does it mean? How is it reflected in our institutional structures? How do we start imagining things and doing policy differently from what we've done before? How do we, when we make decisions on water, look at the issues of energy and food? How do we, when we look at the issue of oceans, look at the issue of the poverty impact of the state of our oceans? So we've got to start thinking differently, uh, particularly in policy establishments, in all academia, everywhere actually, of how to optimize policy. And it's clear that optimizing policy has to factor in the, the, the interests of future generations. It's not easy sometimes to dollarize the benefits and costs which accrue over generations, which accrue over economic issues, social issues, environmental issues, and also issues of peaceful and harmonious mm -hmm. society. So the first challenge is going to be the challenge of mindsets. How do we make those changes in academia? And I'm saying that because, of course, UPenn is playing such an important role in today's meeting. How do we make those changes in policy establishments? How do we start thinking of our problems differently to reflect this principle of integration? The second big challenge is going to be the challenge of technology. Uh, I have great faith in technology, and uh, particularly the co communication technologies which links us like never before. How do we put science and technology in the service of the poor? That's the question I think we should be asking in the scientific establishments and academia. And the third is being able to raise the resources that are required to make this change happen. So I would say these are the three big constraints in my mind to the success of the SDG agenda. Khaled and then Bill. Yeah, uh, thank you, Edith. Let me just pick up the, the point of integration which Nikhil highlighted. Right now, we are, not, we are unable to conduct an economic policy and look at the environmental implications or do an environmental uh, perspective and somehow keep growth moving. If you look at GDP growth and if you start adjusting for inequality, you get a very different picture of what's actually happening. So people have done some interesting studies that if you see how the bottom 40% of each country is doing, 
you've got a totally different perspective of how growth rates are moving. Someone made an adjustment for the UK and tried to compare. The 90s were considered to be a great decade in the UK. But the minute you adjust for inequality, the 80s, which were not considered to be so great, become a little better than the 90s. So I think putting people first, if you really want to make a difference, you have to integrate these issues in a way which put them first. You have to then see how the economic policies are connected to social issues and how the social issues are connected to environmental things and bring them together. The way we, can, where we structure governments right now, there are different ministries for each aspect, but they are not necessarily connected. Uh, there's uh, someone mentioned earlier this, today that uh, in Sweden they have now set up a ministry of the future, meaning that how do we look at the future? How do we think about the future? The technology challenges which are going to be tremendous. Uh, there's been a study saying that uh, if you look at the future, 40%, there's going to be a high end of jobs, meaning people who have a lot of skills, pen graduates and all, and people who are at the bottom part, but the middle class may get hollowed as technology comes into full effect. Lawyers, I shouldn't have said that, lawyers <laughs> may be getting out of business because all the algorithms which will be driving that. So we have to think of a much more connected way of doing policy, and that's going to be the real difference in how do you shift mindsets, but fundamentally shift policies in an integrated way. Bill? I'll give you three, and I think they dovetail with yours to some degree, governance, resources, and will. The reason I remain optimistic is I think we're seeing real improvement on the governance side, at least in some countries, and that's a place where international law, I think, can impose real constraints and real pressures. Resources, we have to think not just about how they're distributed, but how we expand the pie. And that's where technology may be able to make a huge difference. I think back about the implications of the Green Revolution on food security and agriculture. There are extraordinary technological solutions out there, but we need to be investing in them and applying them in the right way. But ultimately, it comes down to human will. Do we desire to get this done or not? Are we going to think about it in a way that puts people first, as you said? And are we willing to make the sacrifices it takes to get there? That's the piece that depends on all of us and everybody around the world, and international law is not going to do it. We have to make the changes that get us there. Rangita? Um, I'm a huge proponent of the dialectical relationship between law and policy. However, I'm also skeptical. 139 countries have an anti-discrimination equal protection clause enshrined in their constitutions. 125 countries have um, developed anti-violence against women laws. Despite these laws, as we know, discrimination against women, persons with disabilities and minorities remain pervasive. Violence against women hurts and harms over 700 million women every year around the world. So how do we make these laws stronger? How do we ensure accountability of state actors? And I think that's the missing link. How do we ensure accountability and political will? And my uh, recommendation is to create 
violence against women law movement has created, due diligence on the part of state parties. Now in my study of violence against women lawmaking, I see that there is a first generation of laws that only looked at prosecuting violence against women. The second generation of laws called for more by state parties, the prevention of violence against women, called for due diligence on the part of state parties, even for inaction or for omission. So when state parties do not do enough to prevent and protect, prevent violence and discrimination against women, do not do enough to protect women, that constitutes state action. Similarly, when state parties do not do enough to ensure that these development goals are met, that should constitute under a due diligence framework inaction and omission on the part of the state parties. So accountability, I think, is key in order to realize the goals of this Thank you very much. Um, we don't have too much time, so I'd like to open the floor to your questions. Um, we have a couple of people out there on the floor with microphones, and I would suggest that we take three questions um, at once. And if you ask a question and you want an answer from a specific person, say so. Otherwise, we'll leave it up to anyone on the panel to answer. Do I see any hands? There's Thank you. Should I wait until you've identified others or? No. Okay. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, Kanya Dialmeda from the Interpress Service. Uh, my question is partially uh, directed towards Rangita based on a conversation we just had before the panel began, but also anyone can feel free to chime in. Specifically, I'd like to know um, with concrete examples, if possible, how the rule of law under the SDGs might differ from how it operated under the MDGs. And I have a specific example in mind, which is that in India, a country of 1.2 billion people, despite having laws on the books since 1989 that tackle the fundamental issue of caste discrimination, uh, the most recent census that the government came out with found that one out of every four households in this country that's considered to be the world's biggest democracy practices untouchability, which is the, the practice of not making physical contact with a person considered of a lower caste. And in fact, while this conversation was going on, according to India's National Crime Records Bureau, uh, an average of four violent crimes against a Dalit would have been committed because the National Crime Records Bureau has found that every 16 minutes a crime against a Dalit is committed. So I'd just like to know how the rule of law, and this has happened throughout the entire decade of the MDGs. Thank you very much. Thank um, you. We have a gentleman back there. Thank you very much, uh, Mrs. Chen. And uh, I um, appreciate that you have, and, your, and the panel, uh, emphasize the shortage of uh, compliance with the rule of law. I happen, however, to think that instead of that, there is an overabundance of compliance of law. What I mean by this is that uh, every individual, including us, 
belongs to several social groups. And every social group has a rule of law. And people pay allegiance to different systems of law that are not compatible on, cer on certain aspects. So the real problem is not compliance with a monolithical concept of rule of law, of law, of a law system that exists only you know, in, uh, in draft. But uh, to concentrate on the harmonization of different systems of law that uh, lead to crime. For example, um, I think we got your question, and since we're so short on time. Exactly. Um, Thank you very me, much. Let me go to um, a third uh, question. There's a woman here in white jacket. Hello, I am a professor here at John Jay College and a, an alumna of the University of Pennsylvania Fell School of Government. My question kind of piggybacks on that. What rule of law, whose rule of law? So when you think about, even if you did have a monolithic approach, is it America's rule of law? Is it Western Europe's rule of law? Whose rule of law are we supposed to follow? Okay, um, let's have the panel um, make short answers if possible. Um, please go ahead, uh, Nikhil. There are six basic propositions that I would like to make. I don't want to address the question of why the rule of law, but how the rule of law. And the issues of harmonization and whose rule of law are important ones. But my own feeling is that in most countries, the problem is not in the creation of new laws or new institutions or uh, harmonizing laws which are, exist nationally, which are a product of history, which are a product of national and global forces. It's not a question of harmonizing laws, but it's actually a problem of compliance and enforcement. The second proposition I'd like to make is that without a detailed structural audit of the bottlenecks in enforcement and compliance of your national laws and of keep being in harmony with the international laws to which you are signatory, nothing will change. And there would be no potential in power behind the rule of law. The third is that without such a detailed country by country uh, audit, which structural audit, which looks at the bottleneck in each country, I think donor help will either be squandered or it will be sporadic and arbitrary. You have to try and go and dive into each country to look at the situation as it exists in that country. We heard from Irene so many examples from Afghanistan. Now clearly, if you transpose the problems and bottlenecks of Afghanistan into another country, why? It won't work. You have to do this audit of the bottlenecks country by country, and even donor support would be useless without that kind of detailed um, audit. And fourth is that the legal issues around discrimination, whether it's people of Afro descent, or it's people, uh, migrants, or it's people of, of other issues of discrimination, these problems are everywhere. 
And it's not that the laws don't exist, but they're not being enforced uh, and being uh, diligent enough. And finally, I would say that um, while it differs from SDG to SDG, we have SDGs on the social cluster, we have SDGs on the economic cluster, we have SDGs on the environmental cluster, and those relating to peace, it's in the aggregate, the use and the empowerment of uh, people and the use and strengthening of the rule of law will be a multiplier for each one of the SDGs and the development agenda. Rangita, can you quickly answer the first question about uh, how, mm -hmm. how the rule of law is different under the MDGs and going to be under the SDGs? Very briefly, I think the MDGs understood very well that the face of poverty was often that of a woman. But what the SDG does is to look at it in a more complicated, much more nuanced way to understand that discrimination against women results in poverty has deep and profound economic implications, and that gender equality is a development issue. And that is set out clearly in the programmatic rights in the SDGs, as well as, for the first time, uh, goal number five speaks to the right of women to live free of violence. So the freedom from violence is a freedom to development. And I think that articulation is very important as, um, you know, and I want to close by quoting Amartya Sen who has said, in the political economy of development, there's nothing as important as the agency and leadership of women. Um, Bill O'Connor, do you have anything you would like to add very quickly? Just on whose rule of law, one of the things that really sets the SDGs apart is the extraordinarily broad consultative process behind them. Uh, I think it was the largest consultative process the UN has ever undertaken. This is not the US rule of law. This is not even the Western vision of law. It is uh, a very broad vision. Uh, it may be too broad. The downfall of the SDGs may be that they try to do too much uh, and cover too much territory. But I think one of the things that really sets them apart is their inclusivity. Yeah, I think a lot has been covered. So I'm trying to think of um, a few points which may be of some value here. The first, I think fundamentally, when we talk rule of law, in the, we have to look at it in a very broad context. We have to see how justice issues, how development issues are being addressed. So clearly laws are not enough, we know that. Many countries have all kind of uh, accession to various statutes, conventions, but things have not changed, behavior has not happened. So how do you actually do that? If institutions are not pro-poor, if they're not responsive to needs, change will not happen. This is why I started by saying putting people first. It's not easy to do that because institutions are also captured by elites. They're captured by powerful interests. So we have to find a way to make that shift. And a big way to make the shift is to empower people. When you have a universal approach to education and health, you empower people enormously. And think of what happened in the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring took place mostly in countries which were doing well on health and education. Why? Because once you get educated, you're much more aware of your rights. And you start expecting more from institutions. The relationship between the citizen and the state starts changing. And that has led to other challenges. So the state not only has to now provide more jobs or be responsible for pushing it, but they have to be more responsive. 
And I think this is the key. You cannot just look at the rule of law in a very technical sense of having more laws which improve things, because they will not, and we have enough history to do that. You have to find a way to do things, a range of things, which will empower people and promote full citizenship. <coughs> and that's the only way to move forward. Huh? Thank you. Um, I think we could probably take um, a couple of more very quick questions. No statements, just questions, and please identify yourself, because it's already 8 o'clock. <laughs> we disagree on the petition. The evidence, by the way, I support the rule of law as any reasonable person should. The evidence, however, suggests that a substantial portion of the world's assets are functionally, if not legally, sequestered by the relatively few. In such an environment, the best ideas for sustainable development may be potentially stifled, particularly if those ideas are perceived to be disruptive to the established interests. Yet, fair and equitable distribution appears to be a desirable uh, driver for development. Recognizing that a risk-adjusted reward for investment, could anyone comment on why the disproportionate sequestration of assets has occurred to the extent that it has, particularly in advanced societies and possible mechanisms that might be available to spur and maintain development where the rule of law can be seen as contributing to more fair and equitable distribution what, of what's the world's assets? the question, assets? Mark? Right, so now, could anyone comment on a possible mechanism that might be available to spur and maintain development where the rule of law can be seen as contributing to the more fair and equitable distribution of the world's assets. Okay, um, I think we have time for, is there one more question? Um. Angela Rossetti, um, Penn undergrad and recent bioethics graduate from Yeshiva. So, I'm very interested in the rights of the disabled. Um, so we've talked a lot about the rights of women. What about the rights of the disabled? Uh, that frequently requires that um, resources be allocated to a very small percentage of the population and you get into a conflict of utilitarianism, the rights of the many, and the rights of the few. So could someone comment on that? Great. Um, do I have any? Sure, I'll, I'll take on uh, an aspect of both of those. Uh, in terms of distribution of assets. One of the key questions is distribution that occurred legally versus illegally. And one of the enormous stiflers on sustainable development is corruption. That is unfairly gotten riches. And that's one where both international law and domestic enforcement by third countries, such as the United States, which has really gone to extraordinary efforts in countering corruption, uh, can make an enormous difference. I recognize your question may be deeper about income redistribution even in, in legally gotten gains, but I think we have to tackle the illegally gotten ones first and that can make a huge difference. So the second question on disabilities, I want to point to one example that also speaks to what might be different under the SDGs than the MDGs. And that's an effort undertaken by India uh, to provide access to copywritten works for the blind and have created a new treaty as part of the World Intellectual Property Organization that deviates from some of those traditional copyright protections to provide that access. And that to me is an interesting example, one that doesn't stifle the production of ideas but does open those ideas up to a broader audience. And I think it's finding the right balances there where the SDGs may be able to make a difference. Bandita? 
SDG goals are interlinked. But with that, we also need to look at the way rights treaty bodies are inextricably interlinked. So for example, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And it is important that in the treaty body process, in the reporting processes, in the UPR, the universal periodic reporting processes, just as much as processes um, uh, refer and invoke the different rights treaties that these treaties also refer to the SDGs and the importance of protecting and uh, empowering not just the rights of women and children and although disability is not written into the SDGs but the multiple grounds of discrimination, the multiple forms of discrimination that are written into the SDGs are privileged in the country reporting mechanisms and in the UPR process. Robert? Um, I, I, I think the question on Distribution assets is a, a very important one. Joe Stiglitz has produced a new, uh, recently a new book called The Great Divide. When there's large inequity and unequal distribution of wealth and power, it's very difficult to change things. But leaderships and institutions have to make the effort to bridge that gap because once there's large inequity, it's difficult to make progress on a whole variety of things. And I think this is the uh, the big plus of the SDGs now, the Sustainable Development Goals, is that they have taken up the issue of equity in many different facets. And I think this is a big step forward for a global community to say this is a problem and we must do something about it. And I don't think it's the issue of just having whether it's ill-gotten or, or, or laws which favor the rich so they can make more money. So we have to have a much more uh, careful look at this whole thing and say what is needed for society to be sustain itself in the future. Um, I know that you want to say yeah. <laughs> I'll be quick. On this whole issue of inequality and what can law do to address inequalities, I want to give an example from the poorer countries where of course it's a little more complex and different from the kinds of inequalities you referred to uh, from the ownership of capital and assets in many poorer countries, in developing countries, inequalities stem from inequalities in land ownership. Mm -hmm. And one concrete example of how law can make a difference is ownership rights for women mm -hmm. and the enforcement of those rights for mm -hmm. women and what a difference that would make mm -hmm. in the distribution of land mm -hmm. and consequently of the distribution of income and wealth around the distribution of land. So there are many examples of that nature where law and the, the, the sort of enlightened implementation of laws can make a great uh, difference in certain kinds of inequalities. Of course, on the disabled, uh, the sincere sort of implementation of the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities and holding those nations to task mm -hmm. who are promising in this agenda not to leave anyone behind mm -hmm. And then if we get disaggregated data and statistics relating to disabled people and we see over the next 15 years that there is no significant change even on the implementation of the, con uh, of the convention, then we can really uh, use that 
as a way of bringing greater justice and greater energy into the implementation of the convention. So I think the monitoring and review of this uh, SDG agenda will help address some of the issues you raised. Um, before I wrap up, I, I'd like, I wrote down a few comments that our speakers have made all night and I just thought I would throw them out. Promoting rule of law boosts confidence and promotes investment. Justice has to be driven by demand, not supply. Peace has to be at the core of development. Unless justice is embedded, you can't move forward. And the five Ps for the new SDGs, people, planet, prosperity, peace, and partnerships. On that note, I would like to thank our panel for a very, very fascinating conversation. And on behalf of Penn Law and IDLO, I'd like to thank you all for coming and for engaging and being part of this panel session on strengthening the rule of law in terms of development. Please join me in thanking our panelists.